Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. So welcome to the second episode of Health Tech Pigeon, the podcast. I'm James and back with me today, I have my co-hosts Jessica and Henry and our very first guest, Raj Tanner, the co-founder and CPO at Birdie. Raj, do you want to say hi and tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, first time for me on the podcast, so thanks very much for, for having me on. Um, yeah, I'm the CPO and co-founder of Birdie. We started about five years ago, obviously solving a massive pain uh, in society around social care and building an operating platform. Uh, my background, I've been doing loads of different things, starting banking and then moved over to uh, product management. And uh, my dad has a care home and that's kind of what's got me involved in this space. So super excited to, to get involved and share what we're doing. Oh, nice. I uh, also have a father that uh, was in the care home space. Uh, so grew up knocking around different <laughs> care homes. Yeah, <laughs> I can remember all that same stuff as a child, <laughs> uh, as I'm sure you it's did too. It's very, very weird, actually. Yeah. 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 I remember having a conversation with my uncle and he was like, uh, he was uh, he was doing meds management and he was like, this would be great to build a system around this, wouldn't it? And this was like 15 years ago. Yeah. And then I'm here sitting going, we've built a system for that now. So <laughs> weird circular story. Awesome. And it's doing very well by all accounts. Uh, and I'm sure we will hear all about it. Henry, Jess, how have your weeks been? I've had COVID, so it's been a bit rubbish. But fortunately, I've not been too poorly. So I've it's kind of been business as usual. It's just been really inconvenient. So I feel quite lucky from that perspective. But I've missed lots of in-person things. And just as we've started to like go out and meet people and see friends and stuff, it's a shame. But there's never a good time. And I've dodged it for two and a half years. So had a good run. Mine's the flip of that. I've managed to be in a COVID house, but not get COVID. So relatively good. Nice. Nice. Mine's been interesting. I uh, gave a talk to Cardiff's University Learn to Innovate program last night. So uh, chatted to some students, engineering students, med students, computer science students. Uh, pretty awesome mix of people that I am pretty glad are hanging out at the age of 18 these days to uh, go to the pub and create some epic innovations together. Uh, so that was cool. But I also uh, played six holes of golf and shot 17 over. So <laughs> a mixed week overall, I would say. Uh, Raj, talk to me about your week because uh, this is the first story, in fact. Yeah, it's been a pretty epic week for us. Obviously, we've got uh, lots going on in the business, but obviously sharing the news that we've raised our, our round of funding. So Series B, uh, $30 million, uh, funding our ambition to completely transform the way we look after the elderly and support all of our partners. So yeah, really, really positive news on the on the kind of personal front. Been a super busy week here at Birdie. Lots of people joining, uh, big board sessions around our product strategy and really figuring out what we do with this money. So that's uh, it's been a super exciting week. Yeah, man. So 30 million Series B. What's got you to this point? What what did you hit to go from A to B? And then 30 million quid in the bank. What what happens next? What are your ambitions? What are you up to as a company? What's going on in that space? Tell us all about it. It's really interesting, actually, to, to reflect on what's got us here um, more than think about what we do next, because we often don't reflect a lot on what we, got, what we did to get here. We're just so f- focused on the future. So I think we've just been super focused on building a product that's useful to the end customer. So um, when, I, when I started Birdie, I think I always thought about this interaction between like the patient and the clinician, right? And in this case, the clinician is a social worker, sometimes maybe a private nurse. 
And that interaction is just so rubbish. I mean, one of the people in my team is a GP and she's, you know, from her experience, it's just so painful to just have that interaction because you've got this pretty rubbish system that you're trying to type stuff on, have a conversation. And so, yeah, it's this kind of really relentless focus on the product and just generating value. And that's got us quite a long way so far as, as it can make, uh, as it sounds like clearly. And it's really, I don't know why we say it's the user experience, but it is just that little piece in the middle that we're working all the time. And we do that by actually just having um, individual squads deeply focused on a certain problem space, right? So some are focused on billing, some are focused on um, instant management, some are focused on scheduling. And they just spend like every week talking to customers, taking that feedback in, putting the product going over and over again on it. And I think that's, it's really sad, but I'd say that a lot of the software that's out there, just it's built because some senior person said, I need this functionality and then it's good luck, you know, user, use it how you want. So that's kind of what's got, got us there. Um, if I'm being honest, that's pretty much what we're spending on the future. So social care is now growing to include healthcare at home. There's loads of people doing complex care. There's living care facilities. There's extra care facilities. There's support living, which is a great market. These are all really complicated, right? And so just building a product that supports all of that is, is a big endeavor for us. And then the second thing, and it's kind of in, in what we've shared, um, we've now become this operating system for healthcare at home. And there's a ton of other things we can do on either side. So these agencies need HR systems. They need CRM systems. They want to do learning development for their caregivers to retain them. And none of this really exists. They have to plug this all together. So just having this one place where they can do everything is, is kind of what we're focusing on now. Um, amongst that, obviously, Again, loads of demand from international customers. So thinking about how we go international with the products, it's already translated in Spanish and French. And so, yeah, loads more to do, I would say. Um, for me, I, when I talk to people, I just think it's the, I really think it's the beginning of, of the journey for us. Um, I know it sounds like a lot, but I think in the whole scheme of the problem, it's a small amount, actually, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's cool. It's been a busy week. <laughs> it has been, a, it certainly has been a busy week for you. Heck of a climate to be raising in, right? I mean, we saw a couple of weeks ago all the, you know, the Y Combinator, like almost like Halloween style scary messaging of like, oh my God, it's going to be so scary to be in this sector and like blah, 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 all this stuff. But obviously still people, still people are raising. I mean, what, how, how do you view that? In, having been through this recently yourself, it, is it something that you noticed at that level, you know, the Series B investors and things like that? Are you noticing people are going to be more cautious now or is it the level above, do you think, of LPs investing in VC? I mean, where, where do you think this pinch is or where is it coming? Or is this just a lot of hot air? Like, what, How do you view that? No, I, I definitely think that the, the pinch is coming. I think for us, like really very luckily we we raised before the side of the news broke and things started dropping off a cliff and you know so that was a big a big thing right is just having that kind of signed up locked in however i think i mean uh, and we talked about it but you know before we started the, the the show which is just having good fundamentals as a business and having a good vision and strategy is something that's going to go through any climate, right? And I think we were, we've always worked that way. Um, I think we've even more focused on our metrics for January, February. Um, we think we consider ourselves amongst one of the best SaaS startups in any vertical and we aim for those metrics. That helps with any fundraising investment. Um, I think the second thing is we, we're in healthcare, right? Healthcare spend is not going to go away. We're not talking about, you know, selling a product which we don't need after the pandemic or something that's a bit fashionable for us to sell. It's it's just a massive problem that's never going to go away. So that helps. Um, so I think those two things make us still an attractive investment. I think what's what's been the hardest, if I'm being really honest, throughout all the fundraising rounds is to to explain to investors how much opportunity there is 
for a return in this market, but also how big this problem is in social and healthcare. I think a lot of VCs are kind of scared of health and social care because it's 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 regulated, it's difficult. You have to go and talk to the NHS. It's quite slow. I think we've been lucky to sort of navigate a path in social care that makes it a, an easier story to tell. But we really have a much bigger ambition than just a vertical SaaS business that we are today. So I don't know. I mean, on the macro front, I would say I think it will have an impact. Absolutely. I think it will change the risk profile, the investment returns. Am I kind of broadly positive for it? Yeah, because I think the right startups, they're going to have the biggest impact on society, are going to get funded. And if there's one thing about us, it's societal impact is more important than the, the revenue and fundraising. That's what drives us. So I'm, I'm uh, optimistic we'll get more of the climate change and battery startups getting funded that really need it. Yes. Than the other way around. Interesting. But my personal view. Yeah. And that's the thing. If you do pinch resources, people just have to put them in more well thought out places, perhaps if they're holding on to less or trying to do more with less, etc. It uh yeah, becomes quite interesting. Henry, Jess, any questions for Raj on Birdie raising 30 million? I mean, yeah, I mean obviously first of all, congratulations. But you talked about being like in a really good place as a business. What were the metrics that you as a business are interested in, like as a C-suite? And what are the metrics that your investors were looking at? There'll be lots of people listening to this who are in a much earlier stage than you. And there are the classic SaaS metrics, you know, churn, ARR, all the rest of it. What's important to you as a business and what's important to the people who are investing in you? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think to be honest, it's the same ones on, on the kind of SaaS side that you would see in any report. So there's a there's a really good report written by Bessemer Venture Partners that outlines those metrics and what they should be. So typical things like um, churn, net retention rate, um, you know, NPS, growth. I think, uh, really speaking, I think growth is a massive, uh, massive number in the, in the history of the, the kind of VC investing. I think maybe in this uh, in this climate, it might be a little bit different, more about profitability and kind of path profitability. Um, but I think growth is a big one. Um, I think internally we think about those, but I think we also spend a lot of time thinking about customer sentiment and NPS. And, you know, we talk about that interaction between patient and caregiver. How do we measure that? How do we show that that's beneficial? I think those are equally important measures, not just the immediate kind of revenue and financial numbers we have to pick up. But I, I would be, I would say, I mean, our, our strategy was, has always been as a company to be you know, financially independent as quickly as possible to then fund our, our broader vision. So although we, we look at those longer term numbers, I would say the focus still remains on the typical things you would see in any of those reports. Yeah, I just have one question. And obviously you talk about, you know, in this funding, but from that kind of healthcare, social care, health tech climate, you know, hopefully it's going to be the solutions that are going to have the most impact that are going to get the flow effective. What do you think the kinds of solutions we're going to be seeing actually being able to access this funding are what kinds of things what kind of solutions are that will yeah i mean i i've, I've somewhat strongly opinionated on, on what it what it will be but i think the broad like maybe that's obvious in this in this podcast already but, um, <laughs> i would say that uh, i would say that um the reality is i look at it kind of economically and, and healthcare is is like any other industry it's got to drive value and profit and at the end of the day someone is buying these solutions in the NHS, right, um, or in a social care vendor. I think these are margin-constrained industries that have dramatic impact on those patients. So I think sometimes you go in and say, if I can have a great patient experience that solves this single pain point or problem space, I can scale it, but it's very hard to scale it. And I think we really focus on what's the like global value we can generate. So every product we build, we actually figure out what the value is to the provider in terms of their, you know, 
improvement in margin. And we then judge on that how we prioritize our features. And I, I go back to an article I read a long time ago by um, Andreessen Horowitz. It's like the ones that will win in, health, win in healthcare are these like the ones that can drive the billing, you know, the, the kind of the margin improvements ultimately. So we look at it that way. And that's how you fund kind of the broader vision of impacting people's lives. Um, that's how we think about it. Um, so I, I, I think those, those solutions, I, I think are really interesting. Equally, it's sad to say, I really love the kind of point solutions that solve a core problem for a certain user group. And I just, I'm really sad because in, in our world, you see a lot of them and they just struggle to get like the scalability for VC investment. And I think one of our hopes is we provide a platform so that some of those point solutions can actually then get to market and go to like hundreds of thousands of care recipients because the actual impact of those point solutions are phenomenal. They just can't get to market um, at scale enough to drive that. So I don't know, I, I'm a bit on both sides, right? Um, I think we need the platform and and specifically in social care, there is just not a platform. There is there is not an NHS equivalent to like go and sell to. There's just 8,000 individual agencies and it's very hard. Um, awesome. Raj, thank you for uh, coming on to talk about our first story this week, Birdie's uh, 30 million Series B raise. Uh, and you're going to stick with us to talk about the rest of the story. So here we go. On to story number two. Right, so story number two. Fertility and period apps can be weaponized in a post-row world. So this is the story that Wired has reported that search history and other data has actually already been used as evidence to criminalize those seeking an abortion in the US, those states with stringent local laws anyway. But privacy experts now worry that the more granular data collected by period tracking and fertility apps could be particularly incriminating for those seeking an abortion. And the concern goes far deeper than just the fertility apps. Basically, any health data app for pregnant people or potentially pregnant people could be weaponized. Jess, your thoughts. What do you think about this? God, it's a big one, isn't it? And um, I think we recorded our last week's podcast, actually, the day that the uh, Roe versus Wade announcement was was made. And, and, you know, we started talking there about, you know, health equity and uh, the inequalities for women of colour um, in maternity care and all of that kind of thing. And I think this is like, this is the next chapter that, well, we all saw it coming, but yeah, it not quite so soon after. And I think, frankly, that the entire saga and scenario is totally and utterly petrifying. And I, I speak as a woman a woman of the world, I guess, in the global sense, bearing in mind that, you know, this is something that's going on in the US, but, you know, those conversations are starting over here too. So, you know, it begs the question, you know, how long until we see some of this coming into reality over here as well? It's not just a US, a US topic. And I think there's two things. I think it, what does it mean for women and care for women, but also what does it mean for patient data? and ownership of data. Um, and I think those are two really important questions. Um, but also, you know, so data aside, and let's just go back to the actual issue here. And I think for me, one of the things is, where, where does this end? Because when you even think about contraception, for example, and IUDs, the purpose of those is to stop the implantation 
of embryos within the uterus. So where, will that end up being brought into this scenario in some way, in some shape or form? How, how far is this going to go as if it has not gone far enough? I think health tech has a responsibility to play a really big role here. As Jess mentioned, the flows message yesterday or on Wednesday was fantastic. Um, I think that's going to be a hugely important part. I've seen some sort of like very weird uh, responses to it from people being like men being like, I'm just going to download the flow app and just put nonsense data into it. Let's see what happens with that. But I think as an industry, health tech has to, to take this issue by the neck and to be like, right, we can't, we can't be beholden to what is a borderline medieval law change because we process big data sets, right? Like big data is an incredibly helpful thing to healthcare and it can't be used to hold individuals to account. So the positive way to respond to this is to offer people the features and functionalities that ensure anonymity, which will ensure that, you know, things like femicide don't increase. And, you know, if we can do that in a safe way that is ensuring everyone using an app like that safety, then we'll have done the right thing. And I think that there's there's not a period tracking app on earth that's not going to start doing this, right? There's been there have been articles recently about some of the data concerns around menstruation apps. And I think a lot of them have addressed those, but the big players in that space will put in place functionality that will ensure that people won't die because of this. Like people are going to die because of this rule, this law change. But I think as health tech, I trust it as an industry to put in place the right measures to ensure that we're not responsible for that, to ensure that we're not facilitating something abhorrent. Yeah, it's um, we talk a lot about actually um, data ownership and uh, data privacy and things like that at Birdie as well. Um, I think uh, we're we're in a slightly different industry where actually the there's a real division between what happens in you know the NHS and healthcare systems where it's owned centrally and you trust the government where, versus we're in an industry where the private agency owns this <laughs> and it's kind of happening already. So you know there's no real rules. I mean, if the the equivalent is there's a bunch of paperwork that's like very sensitive about a older person hanging out in various places. That's the kind of real world example today. So I think the the one positive I take from it, um, and as you talked about, is that. There is such a strong ethical compass within healthcare that's slightly more, you know, more prevalent than in other industries. And you would hope that that drives the right um, decisions and behaviours when it comes to data ownership and privacy. I think that's that's what I'm very hopeful of. And I, I see that with, you know, my colleagues and the, the companies or the partners we work with. Um, however, I think there's some really difficult technology problems to solve as uh, as the world evolves and we're only not on the cusp of that and i think it's uh, really important we do think deeply about where data's stored who has access what controls we have um and i think probably possibly one of the things that's held health tech back a little bit is just not answering that fundamental question because all the kind of consumer stuff on top of it you can build afterward but actually if you can't deal with this where's data stored how do i access it how do i deal with de-identification kind of what we're used to doing on econ websites right now and apple privacy issues uh, or, or privacy stance, like we just don't have in most of the rest of the, the healthcare system. So I think it's a really fundamental thing we're going to have to solve as, as a an industry over the coming five to 10 years. Such big questions um, and such a huge topic that I think we're going to end up speaking a lot about on this podcast. So story number three, what does the end of COPI, C-O-P-I, mean for digital health innovation? Well, first, COPI 
is the control of patient information. That's what COPE is. And this is about the emergency measure that allowed so much greater sharing of healthcare data. Well, that's coming to an end on June the 30th. Uh, in fact, what, yesterday, day before. So were healthcare organisations ready for this? Were we as health tech ready for this? Did we even know it was happening? This is what Hazel Jones, head of health at Made Tech, tries to answer in the article. Henry, tell us about this one. And we all knew it was happening, right? It's been extended three times. In its current guise, it came in in March 2020. And we all know that's when when the world imploded. But it's been around since 2002, which is when like Alan Milburn, if anyone remembers Alan Milburn, I feel like Alan Milburn probably doesn't remember Alan Milburn, but when he was health secretary. So it's been around for a long time, but the remit changed or like the, the process changed in March 2020. So like previously, have like you still had to have a really good reason to have the data, but the emergency legislation they brought in in 2020 um, kind of restricted them from sharing it in, or took away the restrictions on how they shared it in certain ways. So NHSD still had to agree to share these data sets, but it was made a lot easier. And it made a huge difference to our understanding of the pandemic, of the impact on the population, and therefore on our ability to fight back against it, for want of a sort of less violent metaphor. And so like giving researchers access to primary data would have been really difficult without these sort of enhanced copy notices. I think the industry knew this was coming and we all knew it was coming. Like they weren't just going to keep these going forever. I think what this raises is a more interesting point about big anonymized data sets. We now know, we, we've had it proved, the value of them has been proved, right? Like you give good data to good research bodies and good companies and they can create great outcomes out of it, right? That's always been fairly obvious, but it's also always been really contentious because it's patient data and that's the most contentious NHS. Well, that's probably not true. It's one of the most contentious NHS issues, right? The value of that data is absurd financially. How do we control the flow of it? Now that we've proved that we can do amazing stuff with it, I think we need to look at ways in which copy can be enhanced so that large data sets are available to more people, arguably available to everyone. If that data is anonymized to a degree that it's still useful, but it's not identifiable, I think that's useful. I think that you can then start to look at things like real population health management. You can say, okay, well, in actually on the day that ICSs become statutory bodies, I'm going to reference the CCG, but you can say that in like Blackburn and Darwin, I think has the highest incidence of type 2 diabetes in the country. And you can start looking at the pockets of that data. And why is it here? What's here? What's the difference in healthcare availability and education? And you can actually build proper population health maps. We have that data and we have the ability to help people in a proactive rather than reactive treatment pathway. So I think that we all knew this was coming with copy, but we need to look at a better way of sharing that valuable data that the NHS has as an anonymized data set so that we can we can be proactive about healthcare. I think the one thing that's interesting for me is just that it um, is a constant theme amongst all these issues is data ownership, data privacy, um, access of data, doing it fairly, empowering the end user to have that control. I think it's just, um, to go back to the same point I made before, it's a fundamental, fundamental problem to solve before you can do all the innovation on top. So yeah, we talk about it a lot, we think about it a lot, and I think... Uh, it's, it's, I'm glad it's starting to get the uh, the limelight it deserves. I think that's the thing, isn't it? If this is appearing in more than one story, even in the same week for us, it's clearly something that's getting more and more and more up further and further on the agenda of actual big problems to solve. And that is 
interesting and in some ways exciting. Henry, for those people that are listening to this podcast rather than reading the newsletter, are you brave enough to talk us through all of your copy puns that you uh, that you put in the newsletter? Why don't you Why don't you read them out? Maybe I don't think bravery comes into this. I will always stand by my puns. I think that healthcare needs more puns, and that if anyone wants to hear my nasal voice reading out puns, uh, they can they can simply drop me a message, um, and I will read them <laughs> to them. But I won't be doing that on the podcast because, frankly, these are three of my worst ones. Okay, that's fair enough. Story number four, who are the most active PE investors in healthcare? Now, for any junior clinicians listening, this is not uh, people investing in pulmonary embolism or anything other clinical uh, things for PE, although I know everybody gets a bit tachycardic at hearing those letters next to each other if you are clinical. This PE is private equity. The simplest explanation I've ever heard of private equity, it's uh, big businesses buying other very big businesses. And ones that have been bought this quarter include Ramsey Healthcare in Australia, Athena Health. I mean, that's got to be, what, a few billion right there, surely. Um, but Henry, talk to us about this. Why should we care as Mia Minnows in Little Health Tech talking in the millions? Before we do that, firstly, I've never heard anything more med school than getting a bit tachycardic. Like, <laughs> that we'll talk about that later. Um, yeah. I'm going to level with you. This article is reasonably interesting, but it is essentially uh, top trumps of different PE investors, right? So you've got all the big players in there, Audax, KKR, TPG, hundreds of billions of dollars. And then there's like some specialty ones. So there's a US PE shop called Havencrest Capital, who just do sort of health tech. And then you've got CBC Group, who are the sort of Chinese equivalent of Havencrest. The reason I've included it is because I think there's a broader discussion to be had now about the two parallel messages that PE and tech companies are putting out there in their marketing and their PR. One of which is everything's on fire and we're all doomed. And there's the sort of Y Combinator tightening your belts. We're all in a mess. Like this is going to be the toughest two years ever. And then there's just lots of stuff being pushed out there. Like Amos just got bought for 1.5 billion. And like all these amazing companies have raised. And there's these like two parallel things happening at the same time. And it's it's really weird. It's just a really weird time because great companies like Raj and like Birdie and like Siomix and other companies are raising. And at the same time, you've got basically lots of people who don't really have a vested interest in saying the market is on fire, telling us that this is it, this is the end of days, and we're all going to be eating beans out of a tin for the rest of our lives. That's why I've included it, because I think, A, it's our responsibility to inject a bit of positivity into, into what is quite a dour sometimes space, and B... What's going on? I don't understand how both of these things can be concurrently true. I don't know, Raj, if you have any opinions on on what where the balance lies in that message. What's going on, Raj? Decode this for us, Raj. Oh, yeah, but I, I think it's they're different. They're also different ends of the spectrum, right? On it, on investment. So as well, I think that's uh, um, you know one end is these big healthcare players. We talked about it before. Like this is an industry that's never going to go away. Um, it's you know when you look at the GDP spend in in the US, it's like massive. So. It's just there are massive problems to solve. So I, I'm I'm very like you. I'm really optimistic. I think um, we're finally getting the investment that's deserved in health and social care that uh, will solve many many problems we've had for twenty to fifty years, frankly. Um, and it's actually, if you look at it on an investment terms, we're it's a small amount of what's been invested in other industries, right? As a percentage term. So I'm I'm optimistic. I think we're starting to drive innovation. We're trying to solve proper problems. So um, definitely the optimist view. Um, and then the other thing is we talked about before in a downturn market, 
these are more they're more stable markets right than, than the big booming markets that we've seen in the past five to five to seven years so yeah totally optimistic i think there's plenty that we can solve um through technology fundamentally it's a great point i think i'm unnecessarily competitive with fintech uh, for absolutely no reason other than the fact that every time the biggest seeds are released every month that bar like three months in the last two years they've always had the biggest ones so it's a really good point that we are arguably a more resilient industry like this is not health isn't something that's going to disappear On to story number five, Sajid Javid, the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, has outlined a digital NHS and says that tech needs to learn the health services value. So City AM earlier this week reported that Sajid wants to reform the NHS, here we go again, to improve its digital efficiency, here we go again. This month at Comfed in Liverpool, he doubled down and talked about a small window of time where we can make a big difference by combining valuable lessons from the pandemic with new technology and innovative ways of working. Does sound familiar. Uh, the government's digital health and care plan, he said, is soon to be published. Um, he's had a heck of a week, uh, Sajid Javid. Raj, you been keeping on top of this? Yeah, I mean, I just, uh, we, we saw the announcement, I think, yesterday on the 30th. And uh, it's a big, I think it's the big paper he talks about in City AM. So uh, actually, I think when I'm, I'm flicking through it, it's really a combination of a bunch of different announcements that's been made over the last couple of years, really about driving uh, digital with both health and social care. It goes back to some of the points made earlier in the podcast. It's just how do we bring this single view of a patient or a person, if you want to make it more uh, like you know, generalizable into a single place that we can then we can then interrogate. And it's it's super fascinating because it talks about a lot of the things that are technically very challenging: cybersecurity, interoperability, usability, things that uh, just are not done well within health and social care at the, at the moment. I think that on top of putting the patient first and you know, giving them access to the NHS app, having those services being delivered. I was actually really, really positively surprised when I read it that, you know, there's 40 million people on the NHS app now. You know, a lot of people are accessing it. I think a lot of people see the value of those services. And, and I think on a positive front, the government has done phenomenal things in terms of the .gov.uk service on other fronts. So, you know, they have the muscle here to do this. I think now um, through the combination of the last few ministers, you've got a clear vision and the funding behind it. Um, and, you know, we have already are massively strong believers that the digital innovation will drive the efficiency within these sectors. Um, particularly if you take the long-term five-year plan view, which is, you know, you need to move out the hospital setting into the community setting. And it's just not feasible to do what we do in hospitals in the community. I mean, you guys both know you have, you know, those those computers on wheels, right? The cows hanging around on the uh, the hospital floor. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to take a cow hanging around on people's homes. Uh, so that's that's the problem that we're trying to. I think that's being solved. So yeah, I mean, look, we're super optimistic. Glorious imagery. <laughs> um, we're super optimistic about this, uh, about the drive and the initiative. Um, and actually, what we're really happy about, like going back to the sort of us as Birdie, like this is basically what we've been wanting to do for you know four or five years now. Um, and so to see that coming out in white papers and commentary from the government is phenomenal. And, you know, we're, we're, we're not trying to own it all, I think. As long as it can move that way, I think it's phenomenally, um, phenomenally valuable for the end patient. So, um, yeah, I think it's a really positive thing. I think, uh, as always, it's down to the execution. And that can always be a little bit bumpy uh, when, it, when it comes to NHS and the government. But I think this is a, uh, a more clear vision than we've seen before. I completely agree with Raj. And it annoys me that I agree with Raj because... 
I like a bit of governmental criticism, but in the last couple of weeks, like we've seen some long-term plan refresh that look positive. We've seen data policy. The only thing they've done that I think is a bit that could be fixed or that Javid has done recently is that they've said they might not release the full workforce plan, just bits of it, just release the whole thing. Like we all know that there aren't enough people. But the one one that really got me is that they broke some kind of like health tech immersion. Like Anyone who's worked in health tech knows that when a, when a potential client asks you about functionality, you go, it is on the roadmap. That is, oh, yeah, that is back, right in the middle of the roadmap. And that like, <laughs> then they announced like three days ago that what the app roadmap was, and Raj, as you, as you rightly say, execution's key, right? You can't just have the idea. But they announced specific pieces of functionality and how they plan to get there. And I was like, this breaks like health tech emerging. You can't, you can't actually have a plan to get to those bits of functionality. That's mental. So if they get there and the app gets there, Javid's had a good week. Like it's been a, it's, it's been a solid week for them and annoyingly fair play to him. Well, that's, that's a first Henry saying fair play to uh, a minister. We'll see how many times that happens. Jess, do you want the final word on this? I don't think I really have anything else to add to that. I think that's covered a lot of ground. Um, but I suppose my, my only additional point would be that I feel like at the moment there's a lot of talk about what these new policies and plans that are going to come out. And frankly, I'm kind of done talking about it. I want to see them um, and I want to understand what that actually means. And I think, you know, there are so many of them, but actually they can't be viewed in isolation. They're all part of the same puzzle. And so it would be good if I think we could stop talking about what might be in them, what might not be. And if, you know, government and various departments actually share the exact contents of those policies and give us a clear action plan for how we deliver on them and actually then as uh, as an industry how health tech can accelerate some of those plans perhaps and build on them improve them and, and get us to where we want to be you know more quickly cool well look thanks everybody for joining me to discuss the health tech news this week if anybody wants to get hold of you raj and to hear more about what's going on with birdie what's the best way for them to get in touch with you yeah, um, I'm actually super active on LinkedIn. Um, I'm still trying to work out my Twitter life. Um, not too active on that right now. So yeah, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, always looking for great people to join. And uh, yeah, always happy to chat about this stuff and see where the world's going. So just reach out. So for anybody who wants to grab all of those stories talked about this week, you can get it in the Health Tech Pigeon newsletter. And you can go to www.healthtechpigeon.com uh, and you can subscribe to the newsletter there. You can get me, Jess and Henry at our LinkedIn's and we will stick all of those links into the description of this episode as well as links to Raj and Birdie. Um, thanks so much, everybody. Um, I'm sure we will all catch up very soon.